Good morning. It is a beautiful day and it's wonderful to be with you today. I just am really pleased that so many people showed up this morning so that we can worship God together. I'd like to do something as we start out. I'd like to call your attention to the front page of your bulletins. You might want to go ahead and pull those out and take a look at the front page. There you'll see an article. It's from our elders and that article is entitled, We Need Your Help. And that brings up all kinds of elder jokes, but we won't go there at all. But they do need your help. And what they're asking about uh, you to help them with is something that we're going to do this spring. We're going to select additional elders here at Netherwood Park, additional elders to help shepherd this church. So how do the elders need your help? Well, one way they need your help is found in the second paragraph of that article that you'll see there. That second paragraph says... First and foremost, we request your focused prayer on this process. Pray that your eyes and the eyes of the entire congregation will clearly see the men who should serve in this role. Pray also that those qualified men and their wives will examine their hearts to understand if they truly desire to serve as shepherds. And finally, pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit to envelop this entire process. So as you might guess, our challenge for this week, challenge number 15, is a praying challenge. I want to challenge you, each and every one of you, to every day this week, set aside time, specific and planned time, to pray for God's guidance during every phase of our elder selection process. I want you to know that this process is simply too important for you not to to take this challenge. So pray about our elder selection process every day this week. Well, today we're going to briefly return to our series from the book of Romans. And I say briefly, not because it's going to be such a short sermon, but because after today, we're going to kind of take a break from Romans. The next two weeks, we'll have sermons that will be focused on elders and the elder selection process One of our elders will bring the first of those sermons next week. I'll bring the second of those sermons the week after that. And then the week after that, April 29th, is going to be our high school senior Sunday. And Addison is going to be up here bringing a lesson on that week. So after this week, it will be the first Sunday in May before we return to the book of Romans. And this morning, I'm going to be spending our time in a section of Romans that's been the subject of much debate. It's been the subject of much disagreement in churches over the last several centuries. In fact, I think it's fair to say that there are few chapters in the entire book of the Bible that have so frequently been misinterpreted, that have been so frequently mistaught by so many different people in so many different areas, as have these chapters, Romans chapters 9 through 11. And I'm certainly not going to pretend like I have the ability and certainly not the time to answer all the questions or settle all of the disagreements in these chapters, but I do want to shed just a little bit of light on those chapters this morning. I want us just to leave here with a a little bit better understanding of what those chapters really say I want to address some of the most dangerous and some of the most disturbing misinterpretations and misteachings that have worked their way into the church over the years. 
These are misinterpretations and misteachings that rely at least in part on these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the reason I say that these faulty conclusions that have been drawn are dangerous is because over the years they've led many people to end up with a false sense of security. A false sense of security about their eternal destination. And because they have a false sense of security, they don't even know that they need to change the course of their lives. But these are also dangerous, these misteachings, because they have led others to have a false sense of hopelessness. A false sense of hopelessness about their eternal future. And because they have a false sense of hopelessness, they don't know that they can change their eternal destination by changing the course of their lives. So these misteachings are dangerous. They're eternally dangerous. And the reason I say that these misinterpretations are disturbing is because they lead to a misunderstanding of God's very nature. You see, when these teachings are applied or misapplied, a picture of God emerges, which is completely contrary to the biblical witness. A picture of God emerges that is an arbitrary God, an unjust God, an angry God. A picture of God emerges that is a God that's made over into the worst image of mankind. And these misteachings are also disturbing because they present a picture of mankind which is also contrary to the biblical witness. It presents a picture of mankind as people who are incapable of making a choice. People who are unable to respond to God's love with their own love. Or even to respond to God's love with their own rebellion. A picture emerges of mankind as being people who are incapable of free will. Who can't choose the course of their life. And certainly can't change the course that they are on. So these teachings are dangerous and they're disturbing. And if you spend any time at all reading Christian literature or listening to Christian speakers or even listening to popular Christian music, you'll encounter some form of these teachings. And all of these teachings can be broadly classified as Calvinism. Calvinism, named after John Calvin. He, he was a 16th century French theologian back during the Reformation days. And in its strongest and purest form, Calvinism can be summed up by five major assertions. Five major assertions. And number one, the first assertion is the total depravity of all mankind. Total depravity. It's the belief that as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, all of humanity is dead in sin and in fact is born into sin. Totally depraved. You might hear this idea referred to as original sin. That's, that's assertion number one. Assertion number two is the assertion of unconditional election. Unconditional election. It's the notion that election and predestination are unconditional. That mankind is unable to respond to God's call. It says that you were either elected and predestined for salvation or you weren't. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
There's nothing you can do to alter what you were predestined for. That's assertion number two. Assertion number three is limited atonement. This is an assertion that naturally follows from unconditional election. It says that Jesus Christ died only for those who were predetermined to be God's elect. It says that God did not die for all mankind. This assertion says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for some, but it's not good news for all. That's assertion number three. Assertion number four is irresistible grace. And this is the belief that God makes man willing to come to him. Makes man. And if you are a part of the predestined elect, Calvinism says you will eventually make your way to God. Not because you choose to, but because you have to. That draw is literally irresistible. That's assertion number four. And finally, assertion number five is the perseverance of the saints. This assertion says that none of whom God has elected will be lost, which also means that none whom God has not elected will be saved. You might hear this referred to as once saved, always saved. You rarely hear it referred to as once lost, always lost. That's assertion number five. Those are the five assertions of the pure or the hard form of Calvinism. If for some reason you want to remember them, you might find an acronym helpful. The acronym is TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. T for total depravity. U for unconditional election. L for limited atonement. I for irresistible grace. And P for perseverance of the saints. And yes, there will be a test at the end of the sermon. Now you need to know, you won't find many churches or very many people who subscribe to this pure or hard form of Calvinism. What is much more common is that people will profess some portion of these five assertions. Some shading of these five assertions. Or a few of the assertions, but not all of them. You can find churches and people who ascribe to some portion or some form of these points. Various shades of the five points. And what is probably most dangerous about these assertions is that some form of these five assertions have crept their way into churches. And they've crept their way into books and articles and music and common Christian belief. And in many cases, they've done that without any awareness or really any understanding of where those beliefs came from. And most importantly, without really any awareness of the dangerous and disturbing places that these assertions lead. And one of the reasons why various forms of these assertions have worked their way into mainstream Christian thinking is that their origin is in Scripture. But I want to let you know that I believe their origin is in scriptures that have been removed from their context and scriptures that don't have really, are approached without really any understanding and appreciation for the entire biblical witness. So after all that, you're probably saying, so why are we talking about this today? Well, the reason we're talking about it Today is because some of those verses, the ones that are most frequently pointed to out of context for support of Calvinism are found right here 
in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the reason that we're speaking about that today is not only has it come in our order of going through Romans, but because it's important. It's important that we recognize this thinking. It's important that we're able to defend the way we think and the way we believe. And I want to help us do that just a little bit this morning. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the verses that are misused. I do want us to look at a couple of examples. And then primarily what we're going to do is we're going to focus on five arguments for why the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed good news for all who choose to answer God's call. The call that is for everyone. For our first example that we'll turn to is in Romans chapter 9. And it's in verse 18. You might want to turn there. This is a scripture that's often referred to by people who have Calvinistic thinking. And the verse says, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Which sounds a lot like unconditional election, doesn't it? Taken just by that, just out of context, it sounds like Paul is saying that God arbitrarily decides in advance who will receive mercy and who won't receive mercy. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And I want to ask you a question. What kind of God would that be? What kind of God would do that? See, taken alone, that scripture gives us a picture of an arbitrary and capricious God. A God who makes eternal decisions for individuals based on nothing more than a a whim or maybe the luck of the draw. And it gives us a picture of ourselves as beings who are unable to impact our eternal destination. Because all of our choices have been removed. All of our eternal choices have been removed. All decisions have already been made for us. And the truth of the matter is, some are in and some are out and there's nothing we can do about it. So Calvinists would argue that this verse teaches that the two people who are going to get baptized here today, those two people, they're really not making a choice. They're really not answering God's call because they weren't free to make that choice. They weren't free to answer that call. And to compound this unflattering picture of God and an unflattering picture of his people and the relationship between God and his people... Romans chapter 9 and verse 20 is frequently pointed to as justification for God's arbitrary decisions. See, verse 20 says, Well, what is molded? Say to the one who molds it, Why have you made me like this? And so what they're saying is, if you want to complain about these arbitrary decisions that are made by God, if you want to argue that this process seems awfully unfair and even unjust, see, Calvinism would point to verse 20 and basically say, who are you to question God? God is God and he can do whatever he pleases. Which is true to a point. God is God and he can do what he pleases. But see, Calvinism requires you to accept that it pleases God to treat his created beings in an arbitrary and unjust manner. And that isn't the God I know. And that isn't the God that Paul's writing about in Romans. 
It's not the God that Paul wrote about in the first eight chapters of Romans, and it's not the God that he's writing about in these three chapters. So let's move on. Let's move on to what Paul is saying about God, what he is saying about his people, and what he is saying about the relationship between God and his people. As I said, let's look at five arguments, five defenses of the truth, five arguments that will help you defend the truth. The truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all. And the first argument is an emotional argument. It's not really an emotional argument. Actually, it's an argument coming from Paul's emotion. His emotion about his brothers, his emotion about the Jewish nation. See, these chapters are very much focused on Israel, the nation of Israel. It's Paul's nation. Paul is a Jew. He is a Jew of Jews. And Paul begins chapter 9 pouring out his heart about what that nation finds itself in. The relationship it finds itself in with their God. So listen to Paul as he pours out his emotion. Chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul's heart's being ripped apart. He says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He says, theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Paul goes on to say, it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So why does Paul have this great anguish in his heart? Well, he has great anguish in his heart because the nation of Israel, the nation that's been given every advantage by God, they were given the covenants. They were given the law. They were given the temple. They were given the promises. They were given the patriarchs. They were even given the Messiah who came through them. They've been given every advantage by God, but they've chosen to not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came through them. You see, Paul isn't anguished. He isn't anguished because God has arbitrarily predetermined that this Jewish nation wouldn't be called. He's not anguished by that because they have been called. In fact, they've been given every advantage in their call. No, he's anguished because Israel chose not to respond to that call. They chose not to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul isn't upset with God. No, Paul is upset with Israel. He's upset with his people. He's upset because they did not respond to God's call. So that's argument number one. This argument from Paul's sorrow. 
See, Paul understands that Jesus Christ died for the Jews and he died for the Gentiles. And he's saddened because the Jews have freely refused to respond. That's why Paul has this unceasing anguish in his heart. Argument number two. I'm calling this a free will faith argument. This argument comes directly from Paul, and it comes directly from these same chapters, verses, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Listen to Paul describe the role of free will and faith in obtaining righteousness. In chapter 9, in verse 30, he writes, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Well, how have the Gentiles obtained righteousness? Well, not because God arbitrarily decided they would obtain it, but because they chose to have faith in Jesus Christ. And why haven't the Jews obtained the same righteousness? Not because of some arbitrary decision that God made that they would not be able to receive it, but because of their own stubbornness. Because of their misguided decision to try to earn righteousness through keeping the law. Instead of having faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say in chapter 10 and verse 4, he says, that Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul says, righteousness for whom? For everyone who believes. And then Paul reinforces the role of free will faith when he writes this in chapter 10 and verse 12. He says, the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. God richly blesses whom? All who call on him doesn't sound like unconditional election. It doesn't sound like limited atonement to me. So argument number two is a free will faith argument. Argument number three is really very basic to our faith. It's very fundamental to who we are. This argument comes straight from the testimony of John the Baptist and straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And this argument refutes the Calvinist notion of limited atonement. It instead affirms that Jesus did, in fact, die for all. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist is with some of his disciples and he sees Jesus walking along. Jesus is coming toward him and John says this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... John testifies that Jesus Christ came to earth to take away the sin of the world, not some pre-selected few. And then Jesus Christ himself says in John chapter 3, verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. 
So argument number three affirms that Jesus died for all, not just for a predetermined few. Argument number four. This is in direct response to the Calvinist argument of perseverance of the saint, saints. Or once saved, always saved. Or once lost, always lost. And Paul in chapter 11 Paul says you you don't have to look any further than God's relationship with Israel and God's relationship with the Gentiles to know that people's free will decisions matter. In verse 11, he asked, did the Jews stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Since the Jews stumbled and went off the path, can they never come back? And Paul answers, not at all. And then, God go, and then Paul goes on to explain that God rejected Israel. But he rejected Israel because they rejected Jesus. And when they rejected Jesus, they rejected God. And Paul explains that God accepted the Gentiles. He accepted them when they accepted Jesus. And when they accepted Jesus, they accepted God. So argument number four is that God predetermines his response to people's responses. Let me say that again. God predetermines his response to people's responses. You might remember a couple of weeks ago I gave you the example of my love for my grandsons. And I said then, and it's true now, I predetermined my love for them. I didn't say this to my children, but in effect, what I was saying to my children was, if you'll just produce grandchildren, I will love them. That is predetermined. You produce the children, I will love them. Predetermined, predestined. I foreloved my grandchildren. So when Paul writes this in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, when he says, Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. He's speaking to the Gentiles. Kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. He says, and if they, speaking of the Jews, if they do not persist in their unbelief, they'll be grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. Paul's talking about a very important truth. That God gives mercy in response to faith. And he hardens in response to unbelief. And God's response was predetermined. In effect, God has said, said, if you have faith, if you'll produce faith, I will have mercy. But God has also said, if you don't believe, then I will harden your hearts. And you will not be saved. See, people don't have faith as a result of God's mercy. They receive God's mercy because they have faith. And people don't have unbelief because God has hardened their hearts. No, God hardens their hearts because they don't believe. 
And this promise has been made to the Jews and this promise has been made to the Gentiles. This promise has been made to all who have fallen away from God. In fact, God has promised to anyone who has fallen away, to the Jewish nation or anyone else, that they are cut off branches, but they can be grafted back in again. If they'll make a choice, if they'll choose to believe in and choose to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they will have faith. That's a hopeful promise. That's a wonderful promise. It's the promise that the once lost don't have to stay lost. It means that the once lost don't have to mean always lost. But there's also a warning in this promise. And the warning goes to the Gentile Christians of that day, and this warning goes to the Gentile Christians of this day. Warning goes to us. Because Paul says, just like the Jews, just like the original branches, those who've been grafted in, those who by faith have been grafted into Jesus Christ and into God's glory, they too can be cut off. If we don't persist in our faith, if we don't persist in our faith in God and our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the warning to us is that once saved doesn't mean always saved. Once saved, always saved if we'll persist in our faith. That's argument number five. That brings us to the final argument, argument number five. To me, this is the most compelling argument against Calvinism. It's the most compelling argument of them all because it's an argument that's presented by the life of Jesus Christ. See, if we believe, and I want you to know we do believe, if we believe that Jesus Christ came to earth as God in the flesh, if we believe that Jesus Christ fully revealed the nature of God in his life and in his death and in his resurrection... If we believe that and we do believe that, we must also affirm, and we do affirm, we do affirm that Jesus Christ reveals that God's love is universal. It's for everyone, for everyone who will believe. We have to affirm that God's love is completely impartial. It's for everyone who will believe and that God's love is kind and that God's love desires for all to be saved. And since we believe in that kind of God and we believe in that kind of love, I would ask those who believe in an arbitrary God making arbitrary decisions about people's eternal future, I would ask them and I would ask you, Why would God need to have patience? Why would God need to have patience with rebellious people? Why would God say he's waiting for them to turn back in faith? Why would God need to have patience for people who had no choice but to rebel and have no chance to stop rebelling? And I'd also ask this. With the loving God that's revealed by the biblical witness, with the loving God that's revealed by Jesus Christ in his death 
his burial and his resurrection. Would the God revealed by that, would he make some people fit only for eternal destruction and then punish them for being that way, the only way they possibly could be? And I want you to know God would not do that and God will not do that. That's not the God we choose to serve. And that's not the gospel in which we believe. For we are people who are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a loving God. Father, thank you for giving us the ability to choose for giving us free will. And Father, help us to be people who always choose you. Father, you sent Jesus Christ as our light. You sent Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. You sent Jesus Christ as the perfect lamb. You sent Jesus Christ because of your perfect love for us. Father, help us to always respond in love and obedience to you and love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for being that God. It's the name of Jesus who is the Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I said I'd have five arguments. I actually have six arguments. And the sixth argument is about to happen right now. Perhaps the best argument for the fact that God loves and calls all who will believe, all who will respond in faith is about to happen right now. Two men are going to come forward. They're going to join with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I want you to know that God's response to the decision that they're making this morning has been predetermined. Because they have chosen, because they've chosen, because they've chosen God. English is my second language, apparently. Because they have chosen God, because they have chosen faith, because they have chosen to join with Jesus Christ. God will adopt them as sons, and God will adopt them as heirs. Praise God that He gives us the ability to choose. So while those men come to the front, let's stand. Let's sing about that God. Let's sing about our majestic God. Let's stand and sing. Sing.